Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Hello. Hello. Hello, Chanute. Hello, Choward. How are you? Just good. <laughs> Thank you. So, your last name, where, where did it, uh, what's, what is Linzen a um, derivative from? It's Norwegian. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it's, from, so- it's from Knutsen. I thought it sounded more Swedish. Yeah, we were running from the Vikings. Where were the Vikings? Where? Mostly, yeah. you know, they originated in Scandinavia, but they were all over the place. Yeah. No, I think Linzen is, is probably a Polish name. My grandma's passed away, uh, was uh, thrown off a train on the way to a concentration camp and somehow survived. She was six years old. Holy moly. Yeah. Wow. And uh, she never talked about it. We, I was just talking about it with my, my kids. My daughter was asking me about it, and she never talked about it with us. She always kept her money in a cookie jar. She... Uh, my grandfather had uh, John, like, this was a little man because, you know, malnutrition. But they found each other, made their way to Toronto, had their own, obviously, demons from what they saw. Right. And here here I am, blistering the Norwegians. <laughs> <laughs> Circle of life. <laughs> no kidding. It's just, we don't know how tough it was. We think things are bad because we're tweeting and yelling. Yeah, I mean, you know. It's stay, a good reminder. Stay at home for two weeks. Huh? Yeah, deal, I got right? my friends saying, I can't take it anymore. Well, let me tell you about my grandma. Yep. So uh, found their way to this to Canada. Her brother ended up in Argentina, where also a lot of Nazis ended up. But uh, she never really got to see her brother because she didn't have money. And, uh, and her, her, my uncle, wow. her great uncle, I would be, yeah. But a lot of Jews and a lot of uh, German Nazis ended up in uh, Argentina. Yeah, they did. Yeah. And Argentina, until Nazis, was like the one of the centers of the universe. I didn't know that. Oh, my God. Buenos Aires? Yeah. I mean, sorry, yeah. Argentina, unbelievable. Wealth from cattle and then fucking Nazis right. screwed it up. And it's kind of like Cuba. Time stood still there. But enough history. Bad history, because I don't even know what I'm talking about. Let's. Uh, who's the guest today? Ali Hamed. Yeah. I don't even want to talk to him anyways. So Ali is a good friend <laughs> of mine. One of the smartest. I think he's 10 years old. So, so, so don't make fun of his age, Knut. I'll try not to. Okay. He has great hair. He's so, he's cute as a button. And I love my son. I love my daughter. But if I was going to have another kid, I always tell Ali, he's just such a good kid. So smart. Went to Cornell, uh, hustles, built his own venture firm. Uh, big, big smile all the time. So he's one of my good friends. Impressive. And uh, I thought I'd have him on the show because he's, he's living in New York through the pandemic and we, and we share deals and we've done a bunch of deals together. And let's catch up with him. All right, sounds good. And I'm late, so let's get him on the horn. Hello? Ali! Hey, how you doing? How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm not allowed to go outside. Well, I guess getting outside is easier, but you're good? Because you're 11 or because you can't go outside? Because I live I've in I've told city. people that you're very young and I don't want to give away your age. How young are you? No, I'm getting old. I'm 28. 
We've known each other oh for like God. six years I now. I knew you when you were 20, I think. 22. I, I think 22 because I think I was a senior. I, could, I know how I could do, legally drink when I met you. How did we meet? We met through Savneet. Oh, Savneet Master Network. So the first time, the okay. first time I, I, I got to know you, I, we did a call. And there was like no agenda for the call. So I called you and you were like, you know, why are you calling me? I was like, you know, my name's Ali and I want to, you know, be like you one day. And you were like checking out of a supermarket or something. So you kept putting, <laughs> you know, kept putting me on hold. And that, like, you were like buying bananas or whatever it was. I was like, man, I really hope this guy invests in all my deals. And did we? We did some deals. Yeah, we did produce pay together. That was like the first deal we did together. So you brought me produce pay. I think I met you. It was like a WeWork stock twits kind of thing. And you came in and, and introduced me to Pablo at Produce Pay. You you bring gold wherever you go. You bring rain. I I try. Well, well, you know these things take a long time, but so far so good. Yeah, it feels like that's going to be good. Oh well, I'm just saying. Like you're always thinking, always hustling. I mean, this show's called Panic with Friends. I don't think have you have you ever panicked at your age? Um. Well, I panic every time I see your 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 name on my phone. I'm like, oh crap, what do I do? Um, you answer. No, I don't so know. I mean, Maybe a mistake. That's probably right. I don't think anyone calls with good news usually, right? Like you get emailed good news, texted good news, phone calls are usually bad news. So this is a trick, and I think this is a trick that I think you know, and you're just saying that I love to call without scheduling, and you know why? Because I think I think I never give bad news over the phone. And because, and and by the way, it's a bull market, so there hasn't been that much bad news in the last fifteen years that I've had to deliver to people, right? There is always bad news, and I and I found a business like you. You were smart enough to find this business early, where people are expecting bad news. It's not like, hey, we're going to do sixteen percent with my option strategy, and you're never going to have a down year. And uh, as long as no one pulls their money, I can be Bernie Madoff and just go along with it. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. In our business, there is bad news. Companies fucking never get going. So, yeah. I, my secret is I call people a lot. And, and by calling them, I could text them. But like, whether it's Ryan Spoon or Jack Newhouse or, or Nitty or you, I'll just pick up the phone and dial you because I'll be like, what does Howard want? And then I never say anything bad. I just say, hey, what's going on? And people like hearing the voice, a tip for young people. Pick up the phone, try a cold call. Try, try a long call to one of your friends just to say hello. Uh, I have a funny story for you. You will build so much goodwill. One, do you, one of the funniest things na- that I remember, you, you, you came, you know, we were meeting up in New York and like, you know, I did like the classic, like send three available times and send the calendar invite like three weeks in advance and whatever. And you show, you're like, this is the only thing that I have in my calendar for the entire trip. I'm just like showing up in like people's offices and saying hello. And it like blew my mind. <laughs> I like couldn't compute it, but it's awesome. And so what got you excited about investing? What was the trigger for you? So I think this is going to sound um, a little cliche, but I, I do mean it. So, you know, I, I always had this idea of, you know, if, let's imagine you sell coffee to somebody, you sell a t-shirt to somebody and they get the t-shirt. It was like this one-to-one relationship, which was kind of interesting. But then if you like talked in a class or gave a lecture, it was like a one to 50 relationship. And like, if you didn't show up that day at the class, it'd be really awkward because 50 people would just waste an hour. Mm-hmm. And if you write a line of code, a thousand people use the app, you know, that's pretty cool. That's like operating at scale. And if you invest in people writing lines of code, it's like infinite scale. And so it felt really cool to get to like every action ends up operating at scale and, and feeling like you're doing something that kind of has impact or, or, or meaning. So the, the really like horrible way to say it is I really enjoy the experience of being needed where if I didn't show up, something really bad would happen. The company wouldn't get capital. They, you know, 
the thing would have never existed. And I think that's also one of the cool parts about venture capital. You know, in private equity, if you don't buy the company, someone else will. There's no like thing that would not have happened at all. But in many cases, and like when you see the business, often you're the only term sheet the company's getting. If you never gave them a term sheet, the, the company may not have ever existed before, like at all. And I think that's like a crazy fulfilling thing that's really unique to early stage venture investing. Love that take. That's a great take. My take, but I'm going to steal a little bit of that, is it, stock market used to be that place. Microsoft, Amazon, they needed that public money. So you felt a part mm-hmm. of it, right? No one feels a part right. of Uber. They're either going to make it or break it, not on the money you've given them, right? And and that's where angel investing continues to grow is people want to be part of this. It's not. It's a different form of charity. It's obviously a charity of the wealthy, uh, or a chariot of the accredited, and obviously the SEC rule change is a big thing because now it becomes a, a potentially, mm-hmm. if used properly, it becomes a charity of the educated and the people that uh, are enamored with the idea of risk and return. Um, this is an exciting time. Like as bad as it is, it's also an exciting time because as negligent it's- as I think this this. Uh, administration has been with, you know, kerplunking the world, like pulling the, the, you know, the game of kerplunk, pulling these sticks out of the uh, institutions until they break. Uh, It all sounds pretty cool that people want to blow things up, but it doesn't sound cool to the people that are used to the institutions, the good and the bad. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think we've seen standing since March, and I don't know how you feel about this, I'm I'm shocked and odd, is that the startups, there's even more interest. Yeah, it, it, it's super weird. I mean, I don't really know what any of this means. Um, like, you know, and you see all the things the government's doing. Like, I don't really know what two or four trillion dollars means. I don't really know, you know, that you can compare printing money today compared to printing money 50 years ago when, you know, currencies might be, you know, more dependent on each. Like, I just I don't really know what any of it means other than the numbers sound really big and it sounds very exciting and probably irresponsible. Um, you know, I I also don't know what it means in terms of you know, high yield markets feel like they're generally sort of like quasi government sponsored now. And like, are they government sponsored because we're in recession or because we're in a pandemic and the government forced people to go into a recession? Like, I, I don't really know what any of it means at all, except for like the Internet kind of won. Right. And like we all were thinking, OK, the Internet's sort of winning. And now, like the game is over. We won everything. Like, here's like this monopolistic sort of experience. And then also we kind of like move from, OK, so. You know, the Internet was a big deal and then the cloud was a big deal. And now the thing that feels like a big deal is these platforms. You know, so we live in like the United States of Google and the United States of like Amazon. And like, I guess it's, it went from being the Fang stocks, like the Fangs stocks of Zoom's like going to be part of that soon. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and so then all the companies that are sort of having to live in that universe. Um, I think that those have been the most exciting companies that we've seen in the last handful of months. Um, and and also this shift of oh my gosh, like it used to be that these platforms capture all the value and now they're showing up in front of Congress being told they're not allowed to capture all the value anymore. And so now there's like this huge economy being able to be built on these different platforms, almost mandated by the government because we have to live in those institutional platforms. It's, it's, it's all very weird. Okay, I love that. It is very weird. You're on fire already. So I haven't even introduced you properly because Canute doesn't know how to produce after all these shows. We're talking about the Holocaust. We're talking about Sweden. We're talking about uh, uh, Toronto and Ali. And nobody even knows who you are. So we're going to, after I come back to your point here, we're going to go back and introduce yourself. But yes, the no one knows. I think the bond market's been politicized, my version of politicized. If you are buying bonds, you are so misinformed or you 
Or you're a regular insurance company. Yes, or you are in on the scam because you're being insured by the government. Like, I, you cannot convince me in a world where the internet that I have to go buy a bond at 2%. You have to be in cash. So I don't care if, 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 if I hear one more advisor recommend a 60-40 portfolio. I don't care what the historical returns are. If you are literally, like when I look at Wealthfront and Betterment and I, and I see that like 2% or 10% of their portfolio is in negative yielding European bonds because they say, well, that, that's, it works, look. Uh, if you have to say it works, look, and just point it, at, that's just the laziest thinking. So, so in a world where everything's being forced into a barbell approach, cash or risk, I think, I think the only thing left that has pure alpha beyond just price, price, uh, quant pricing is, is the startup scene. So it's interesting that you ended up there so earlier in your career. Was there any influence who pushed you in that direction? I think it was sort of by accident. Um, you know, the, the very, very first part, you know, I was a freshman in college and I, Cornell, played baseball. Right? I was playing baseball at Cornell. Yeah. And I got injured. And so I had more time on my hands. Like I had an embarrass, I was embarrassingly available. And so I was just sort of in my dorm room all the, all the whole time. And I remember I was like reading the newspaper and I kept being, because, you know, the senior on the baseball team told me, you know, it, now that I was an adult, it was time to start reading the newspaper every morning and I'd read the business section and, you know, you'd talk to all these juniors in college who would like look at you and talk about their summer internship at Goldman and kind of give you this look of like, yeah, we did LBO modeling. I was like, wow, that sounds really complicated. And then one day I found out that all an LBO was like, oh, a company's making a dollar a year. And so you can lend them money and they get paid back with the dollar of income they're making. Like, wow, that's like not that complicated. And so what I used to do is like I'd, I'd take like the news, what was going on, and I'd summarize it into, you know, an easy to read thing. And I called it youreasynews.com. And I'd go around Donlin, which is the dorm I was in at Cornell. And I'd like change everyone's sort of like when they open their browser, I'd change to my website. And it ended up being like this, like it, it never went anywhere. But it was like the most, the most fun experience I've ever been through. And like I, you know, tried turning to a startup and it morphed into like 14 different other things that never worked. But I just was totally hooked and addicted. And it was the only thing that I, and, and even that like, you know, doing things at scale, like I just got the greatest rush out of the fact that like, if I wrote a small little article, explain something, you know, maybe 20,000 people would read it. I was like, wow, this is the coolest thing ever. Um, and I just couldn't get off of it. And so how did you meet Subneet? I met Savneet because, you know, he was, he was speaking in an entrepreneurship lecture series. So he was one of those fancy, you know, entrepreneurs or the Cornell alum who come back and tell this incredible story of the business that he founded, which, you know, is, it was super complicated. And he would tell all these sort of funny quips about how he sort of like made it happen. And I went up to him with my, I had like a business card that just said, you know, undergrad Cornell. It was like the most embarrassing thing ever. I, I, if anyone finds it, I'll, I'll deny it that it was mine. Um, but I was like, you know, hey, Stephanie, my name's Ali and I'm re really excited about everything. You know, and if I could ever intern for you, that'd be really amazing. And, you know, about a year later, I got this idea of, hey, doing a startup is really hard. Because you had to like build a thing that nobody cares about. And they had to go run around talking to venture capitalists and ask for money. And I thought, man, how much cooler would it be to be a venture capitalist? Because giving money to people seems a lot more fun than asking for it. And all these 26, 27-year-olds were running around just repeating like stuff that their bosses who were 40, 45 would say um, and sound, sounding really smart. And it turns out that like they weren't nearly as smart as I thought they were. And it turns out that the way you start a venture capital fund is you have to ask for money a lot. But I didn't really put the pieces together. So anyway, a year later, I sent like 70 the, the probably the ugliest deck he'd ever seen. He basically said, you know, he told me it was horrible and I would never be able to raise any money off of it. But then he sent me like an example of something that I could use. And then I said, hey, great. And I sent it back to him with his face on it. And I was like, advisor, because he had helped me like redo my deck. And he said, please don't make me an advisor. I was like, well, whatever, I'm gonna make you an advisor anyway. And then we just, you know, built a relationship from there.
And so tell me about the business now. So 60 minutes later, let's get into who you are. And, and your name is Ali Hamed. Where were you born? So I was born in Southern California. I'm actually half Jewish, half Muslim. My name's from my dad, You're who uh, is Libyan. You're a mu. Yeah. Uh, you know, Knut? I don't, I'll, I'll let you know Knut? when I know. Knut is, is, uh, is uh, Jusslam or, or mu more appropriate? I'm not sure which one. Uh, I think Jusslam <laughs> is a cooler name. So you're a Jusslam. I, I can be whatever you need me to be. So when did you move to uh, school? You went to Cornell? Yeah, so I grew up um, playing baseball in Southern California. And then I fractured my back in a couple of places. And I decided, you know, Ivy League baseball would be a lot, you know, less competitive than Pac-10 at the time, Pac-12 now baseball. And it would be a really cool opportunity to get sort of a degree I wouldn't otherwise be able to get. Um, and so I showed up at Cornell and then... Um, I went down to New York City for like a break um, and I just couldn't get enough of it. I thought this was like the coolest thing in the world. And when I got to Cornell, um, the warmest thing I owned was a Cornell sweatshirt. The first pea coat I bought was a women's pea coat. So it was like sort of tightened the waist by accident. I had to like return and get a different one. Um, I, you know, I, I saw boat shoes for the first time. I remember like I walked into my dorm. I saw some kid wearing boat shoes like, oh, my God, this kid's going to get beat up. And then everyone was wearing boat shoes like, oh, crap, I'm going to get beat up. You know, and then I, I had to like pull off the California kid thing. So like I'd wear super tight jeans, which I never wore tight jeans in high school, but I started wearing tight jeans, flannels, telling everyone I lived in Malibu. I grew up in Agora Hills, which is not Malibu and just tried to figure out how to make friends. Um, but I, I just love the East Coast and I love New York and I love the speed of it. And so tell us about your firm. So we started off where we are now um, is we invest out of two strategies. We invest in early stage venture capital um, where we try to write, you know, quarter million to million dollar checks. Initially, every once in a while, we'll write a seven figure check sort of into a a new round and then million, million and a half follow ons. Um, So that's pretty traditional early stage venture. I don't really know what round we invest in anymore because I don't know what a seed round means or series A round or a post seed, pre seed, seed A, post, whatever. Um, But we do early stage. And then um, we also have a credit fund that invests in what we call sort of novel asset types. And so these are uh, assets that either have never been funded before because you didn't have the data to fund them. So, you know, you and I sort of met through produce pay in a way, or at least are working together um, through produce pay. And they fund perishable produce, which had never been financed before. Um, or in other cases, we, fi- we finance assets that have never even existed at all. Um, and so, you know, and those are often tech enabled assets. And so what we'll do is we'll invest, you know, as small as 10, 20 million dollars and as high as 50 to 100 million dollars into those types of businesses. Wow. And give me a sense of uh, where the focus has been, because you've evolved, right? It started out. I gave you I gave used to come to me and I would give you the same advice. I give everybody strong opinions, uh, dangerous to give young people, because did, did you remember? I can't even remember if my advice was good or if it, we, we stayed friends. So was the advice good or like you're always out yeah. there asking for advice. So was the advice that you were getting from people at a, young, at a young age good? I think it was. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of advice is given out of context. I think the reason your advice was good is you actually had the context. Like, it's very hard to give advice on the abstract. Howard, I want to be a venture, venture capitalist. How do I do that? Like, you'd be like, okay, I, I don't know. It's really hard to get a job in venture capital. Maybe you should go start a technology company, sell it, angel invest successfully for a while, raise the money, and then become a venture capitalist. But if I say, hey, Howard, this is a deal I'm working on. What do you think of the deal? Like, I think the reason getting advice from you is so productive is I wasn't just asking. Like, part of the reason people get crappy advice is they ask crappy questions. You know, if you ask a really crappy, vague question, like, how do I get a job in venture capital or how do I get rich one day? Like, you're not going to get good answers. If you ask, like, hey, 
you know, we're thinking of financing this business and like, here's the 14 things that we're trying to think about. And here's 14 pointed questions. And luckily you and I met through like specific tangible things. You end up getting like a lot of good gut checks and a lot of good um, answers. And I think someone like you, who's been investing for a while, the best thing that you have is, you know, what to care about and what not to care about. Like the biggest sign of a new board member or someone who's never been on a board before is they either care about everything or they don't care about anything. And figuring out that right balance of what to care about and what not, like, because you could say something like, hey, wouldn't this business be better if we invested a lower valuation? Yeah, like, of course, that's a super unhelpful thing. But you just have to know what, like, when to care and when not to care and when the valuation matters and doesn't. That's maybe like, not a great example. Um, but there's a lot of other ones in between that um, I think you kind of just knew because you've been doing it for a while and you've been investing with other incredible people. And um, your gut checks were as much of the help as anything. And what would you do differently so, so where are you at today with the firm? And then we'll talk about what you do differently. Where, where are you at? Who should be talking to you? What is your sweet spot? Yeah. So, you know, when we first started the firm, you'll remember this. We used to invest like tiny amounts of capital and we had a team of engineers and we build software for the companies we invest in. And that was like sort of our niche. I hated stuff. that idea, right? It was, you know, it was really hard to scale. And I think we ended up getting a lot of equity and adding a lot of value to companies that needed it at the time. But it's just, it's really hard to scale in a big way. And so we ended up evolving where we just invest capital, um, where we're really just trying to say, hey, here's the money. You, as an operator, go figure out what to do with it. And if you're really good, you're going to do a good job. And, you know, it, it's easier. It's higher impact and, and all the other stuff. You know, where we are today is what we've done is we've built a firm that, you know, we set up a bunch of different pools of capital. So when a company comes to us, we can give them venture capital. We can give them debt capital. If they say, hey, we need neither. We just need something completely different. You know, we're, we're almost like a special opportunities fund when we need to be. And so the space is so, so we can invest as small as $250,000 and as high as $100 million. We can really do a lot of different things. But the things in the spaces that we're most excited about are, you know, lately, it's really been sort of what we call these platform economies. So it's the economies being built on YouTube and on Instagram and on Spotify. <laughs> you know, I, you had Billy uh, from Upper 90 on the podcast earlier. Like they did an incredible job taking advantage of the economy being built on Amazon, which we think is super fascinating. Um, you know, and so, you know, whether it's financing the debt of these assets and the cash flow of these assets, whether it's investing the equity of companies building within these platforms and these economies, those are some of the things that we get most excited about. But we also do sort of like just pure fintechs that could be payments, uh, remittance businesses, KYC, AML businesses, cyber, anyone selling to a financial services firm. Um, so it's pretty broad, um, but we've kind of built it that way because often, you know, it's just hard to predict the future. And so sort of in, in venture capital, the good thing about having a thesis is you people know when to think of you and you can build domain expertise. And it often takes seeing 50 Bs in a space to recognize an A. The problem is having a thesis takes a lot of hubris. You have to basically be able to say, okay, like I can predict where the most important things in the world are going to come um, and stick to that. And that's really hard over a three-year investment period. Wow. And what was the biggest mistake do you think today? Because you're young, so we want to share, you know, if it's not a panic, what would you do differently? Because it's so early in your career. I think, um, you know, I think in the beginning, and, and this is probably true for like a lot of young investors, building conviction is easier. Um, because you just like haven't been wrong enough times to create humility. And I think I've gotten lucky a handful of times on certain platforms where we took a ton of concentration or we went really big, really early. Um, and I kind of discounted. It turns out that like pattern recognition is helpful. Um, it's not the only thing. And people either overestimate or underestimate pattern recognition. Um, but I think that was 
you know, something that I probably was too confident too early in certain spaces. Um, and then the other is, you know, I think I became too myopic too early. You know, I think the first time that you really, really start to understand a business model, you realize how little you understand every other business model. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I let myself get too myopic too quickly, which ended up kind of precluding us from a lot of different things that, you know, we might have passed on that if I had been more open minded or taken that extra moment to say, OK, like we've now seen a handful of things in the space. The space is going to really matter. Let's go deep. We probably would have been better at. And what's your view of the world? So now we've had the pandemic. Let's let's look ahead here. What what do you like, dislike? What, what you know, sitting there in New York, you're you're quarantined in New York still, basically. Yeah. So so, you know, you know whatever quarantined or walking six feet away from people or you know, nodding with a mask on and trying to show facial gestures that nobody's seen. Um, but, but we are in New York. We're in Brooklyn. We're like the last four people left. Um, and we're going to go, you know, hunting for apartments in about a month. And that ought to be a really interesting experience. But, you know, I think for now, there's you know, the way that we look at the world is, you know, 10 percent of the world feels like it's totally on fire. Right. So like live events, hospitality, things that are like obviously pretty hard. And then there's like 80% of the world that feels like a total black box. And that could be like BDCs, that could be commercial and residential real estate, um, that could be, you know, value stocks, anything. And then there's like 10% of the world that everyone decided like, you know, you can have conviction in. And that's, you know, internet-based businesses, that's the FANG stocks, that's SaaS companies, whatever. And so what everyone did is they basically just, like there weren't a lot of spots to pile in your capital, but the government made sure everyone had plenty of capital, so it wasn't going away. And so everyone take their, took their money out of things that were uncertain, put their money into things that were super certain. And there's like huge pa- asset increases um, in those like certain corners of the universe that have a lot of sort of uh, uh, conviction. And I think our point of view is when the amount of available points of conviction goes smaller, you have to have a broader breadth of how to express them. And so what I mean by that is like instead of going to buy Facebook stock, figure out how to invest in Instagram content. Um, instead of like buying Amazon uh, stock, go buy Amazon sellers. Instead of trying to buy go, go in and buying Google stock, go buy YouTube libraries. And so what we're trying to do is figure out like what, how can we invest at the atomic level of these different businesses so we can go find places with high conviction and just agree with everybody, but express it differently. And that's one of the things that we think our firm's really good at because the fact that our capital is so flexible. You know, we're basically like this special ops firm pretending like we're a venture capital or credit fund. Instead, we're saying, hey, where in the world is interesting and how can we do it a little bit differently other than buying a different share? And then the other thing that's really fascinating is sort of like, you know, we all are consuming media kind of differently, you know, and, and I know that when I look at my credit card statement, the amount of money I'm spending is way less every month right now, which is great for me and bad for the economy. But the amount I'm spending on media and content is like skyrocketed. And then the other thing that, you know, has been totally clear is social media companies are no longer going to be social media companies anymore. They're just going to be media companies because it turns out like user generated content totally sucks. And like you are really good at producing content. Most other people should never produce content. I think you even said that to me one time. Um, And and so what's going to happen is all these social companies are going to have to take off all the knuckleheads posting crappy content and turn themselves into media companies. And so one of the things that we're watching really closely, you know, like this TikTok $200 million fund is such a big deal. Because what they're doing is they're paying for content and they're basically just becoming a media company. Instagram has to match that and probably do it in a bigger way. So then they're going to start bidding on content with TikTok, which means, you know, Twitter and everyone else is going to all have to like have this sort of content budget, which makes them a media company. And, and one of the things that we're, you know, the question we always ask ourselves is if you knew what happened in the streaming wars was about to happen in the social wars, how would you invest in it? So those are like the things that we're paying attention to and, and sort of like 
in our universe what matters and what's coming. And crypto, you have a, you spent a lot of time there. What do you what have you learned? Yeah, so we spent some time investing and we said, you know, can we go build a business in asset management and crypto? And, you know, I think the problem is you have to be really, really focused to do it. And the other thing that we found is everyone's sort of already made up their mind. Like you aren't going to walk into a room anymore and have a conversation with somebody who hasn't already decided if they hate Bitcoin or love Bitcoin. Um, basically, what's going to happen is you're going to walk into a room and you're going to enthusiastically agree with each other. Um, or the person's going to like basically use it as an excuse to just argue with you for an hour. And there's sort of like, you know, arguments to learn are a lot more fun than arguments built to win or lose. And the Bitcoin argument is sort of like an argument built to win or lose, not an argument to learn anymore. And so I own Bitcoin. I love personally. I'm super bullish. If Bitcoin's ever going to work, it's going to work now, you know, and it just it's it makes sense at a basic level. Like if somebody told you there's a currency that's built on the Internet that governments can cannot control, like are some people going to buy it in times of uncertainty? Probably. I don't really get gold. I don't own gold. I don't wear gold. Like people always talk about how it's like shiny and nice looking. Like I think it's fine. Bitcoin makes more sense to me because like it's easier to store, easier to travel with, easier to move. Like if I'm in a country and I need to flee my country really quickly, I'm certain it would be a lot easier to flee with Bitcoin and gold. You know, my name's Ali Hamid. Can you imagine me traveling with $200,000 of gold on the airplane? <laughs> Probably not. I was just going to you know? say, you're the first Ali I never ever met that didn't say gold. is long gold. Yeah. So come, yeah at if, if were, come at me. Come at me. If I if I bring deodorant on a plane that looks a little funky, I get like searched. No it, one would frisk Ali Hamid. Well, you know, they don't when Keelan Bannon, my fiance, is with me. She's like the best flying partner ever. And she's a, like blonde Irish girl. Yeah, she's as white as can be. She's my social validation in an airport. <laughs> oh, my Lord. That disintegrated quickly. Thank God. <laughs> the um, What is a deal that you has surprised you that you've done that just you're so proud of and excited about? What's a company you want to shout from the hilltop? So there's a company that we just so there's a couple and they're not announced, but one of the ones. Go ahead, you can get two. Take your time. No, no, no. no. The, the the one that just got announced and we're just crazy proud of it is this business called Wave, and it's based in LA, and it's founded by these two guys, Ishan and Brian, and they had this like tremendous insight that like the next Disney is not going to be built on cable; it's going to be built on these social platforms, these future media companies, and they're basically just like you know Facebook for all their concerns, like the you know the cable cowboy pipes into people's homes and, and their job is to build a bunch of different properties in those different pipes. Um, and, uh, you know, what they've done is they've basically either built or acquired over a hundred different channels across Snapchat, TikTok, and Instagram in niche sports fandoms. Um, and these niche sports fandoms really, really matter, um, because they're super sticky and super cultish, um, and they're young. So if you're like following a fan page of call it Georgia Bulldog football, instead of the actual official account, you're probably a really big fan. You're probably more engaged than you would be if you were just following the actual official account. Um, and on top of that, you're probably young if you're doing this on social. And so where, whereas you have companies like ESPN and Turner who do own sports fans, but own much older sports fans and they're aging each day. So they're losing these young demographics. They're built on these sort of national audiences that you can disrupt because the engagement isn't nearly as high as sort of these niche fandoms. And on top of the, that, these assets are actually cash flowing you can actually predict the value of an eyeball or a follower. And then they have these sort of magical compounding moats around them because every time you get a follower, you become more defensible than you were before. Um, and so it's just become this like obvious thing to us that that's like where media is going. And it's not just sort of some big cable network that every single person is forced to watch. You really do get to kind of pick 
the the medium tail, not the long tail. The long tail sucks. It's user generated content. It's not professional. Everyone just stop looking at you know the average sort of photo that the average person posts. But these niche sort of long tail media businesses are going to be really, really amazing. And that's for us a classic example of an asset that's never existed before, but now does has a predictable cash flow. And, um, you know, it's just, you know, and it's also within these platform economies that we're so obsessed with. Yeah, platform. It's like a DTC media model. Um, and what give me an example of another one that you love. So the other company that we financed is um, actually we so we partnered with a company called STEM based in L.A., um, and we help them build a product called Scale. And so one of the things that we really love about them, so, so the, the music industry is sort of odd, and almost all the financing plot products are equity products. You know, if you think of a label deal, you know, if the artist ends up being amazing, um, you know, the label got too good of a deal and the artist got screwed. Uh, if you end up, um, you know, financing a music royalty, what is a music royalty? Is it, it's not really debt. You know, you're basically buying equity in a song. You have to have good, good taste in the song. You know, my favorite band is Blink-22. Nobody should ever let me buy music royalties. Um, mm. My taste is falling out of fashion drastically, although they are San Diego. So Howard, you have that. And, um, but, and, and there's like tour finance, which like City National will give you, and that's only to like really big, you know, acts. But there's no credit products or credit-like products in music. And on top of that, you know, the type of people who are making money now um, in the Spotify streaming YouTube ecosystems, they're just different types of businesses. And on top of that, they have more predictable cash flows, more predictable revenue streams. Um, and, you know, that's sort of fascinating to us because now you have an asset type or an industry that's been completely funded with only equity, kind of like startups and venture capital. And you have and so you can introduce a credit like product because the cash flows and the revenues that these businesses are earning are a lot more predictable than they ever used to be. You know, you don't have to rely on tours and merchandise sales and all the other things. I mean, that's, of course, part of the P&L of an artist. But you have a big part of their revenues that are now actually really predictable. Um, and so, you know, we partner with STEM. They offer a far more fair credit product um, or, or a financial product for these artists at a time when artists really need the financing because they're losing tour revenues. Um, and that was another one where, you know, we got to work with a company operating within one of these platform economies, whether it's Spotify or Amazon Music or iTunes or whoever, um, and offer a product that had never really existed before. So we're not really competing or trying to be a little cheaper or a little faster. We're just offering something that's never existed. Awesome. And then finally, New York, what's your, you, uh, optimistic? You're, you're planted there. You ever going to leave? Um, you know, if I leave, it won't be COVID based. It'll be because my, you know, something like I, so I, I don't know that I'll never leave, but I don't have any plans. Um, you know, New York's the best city in the world. It's the best and the worst of everything. Um, I think it's going to be really, really hard for New York in the winter. Um, I'm super worried for the restaurants here. I'm super worried for how much of the people here are hospitality based. Um, I'm worried about the fact that our city is run by people who I probably wouldn't be excited to work with. Um, but I really think it's like the combination of the most talented people slash the most diverse people. And that's a really powerful thing. Um, so I think New York's going to be okay. I think it'll be really, really hard. But honestly, like every day in New York's kind of hard. Like even in good times, you walk out of your door and it's just 24 <laughs> hours of people trying to build the crap out of you. It's a little lonelier, know. a little harder, but like it was always hard. Yeah, like, no, how about this? No one's tried to punch me in the face recently during COVID. And like pre-COVID, that would happen once a week. Like if, if somebody uh -huh. used to smile at me pre-COVID, I think I was about to get mugged. Now I can't see their smiles behind their masks. So I guess maybe it's a little bit better. So you are uh, 
Got the right attitude. Super bullish on New York. Super bullish on on startups. Uh, it's good takes. Like I mean, to there's a lot of stuff out there. You know, music and uh, and media are not easy. But you're not scared of the hard work. We're we're investors together at SecFi and Produce Pay. Is there anything else that we cross paths on? I don't. Maybe it's just that too. Although it seems weird that it would only be those two. We definitely show each other a bunch of stuff. And yeah. then, you know, I think the the spaces though that you know we also kind of keep looking at, you know, I think when you look at these different platforms and the places that things are going to be interesting on, I think a lot of them are going to be, you know, like each of these spaces just have a ton of binaries on them. Um, you know, and so, you know, media, it turns out has a handful of these binaries that have gotten us excited. So here's an example, you know, does a, does one of these platforms have a catalog value and the case of Spotify, it does in the case of YouTube, it does in case of Snapchat, it doesn't cause it's ephemeral content Same with Instagram cause everything's Instagram stories. You know, but if you go beyond just media, just to point a point, put a pin in it, you know, I think one of the things that like Billy and Thraz, you know, obviously Thraz is the, the operating company got right, is like they found a platform with like magical superpowers, which is Amazon. You know, and Amazon has two magical superpowers. One is it has free competitive advantages, which is the fact that, you know, if you're ranked number two, it costs no more than being ranked number nine. Yet if you're a normal small business that was brick and mortar, you'd pay more to be on Park Avenue than on Second Avenue to get more traffic. On Amazon, you have like this free competitive advantage that creates artificial gross margins. And the second is you have like a compounding moat in your business because every time you sell something, you get ranked higher, so you sell more. And like, so I think D2C and these e-commerce businesses are going to go really well. And on top of that, they're sort of like real estate in a way because Amazon actually drives traffic in a way that Shopify doesn't. You know, like it being ranked number two is like the same as being the corner store. And then like, instead of having a really nice view and big windows, you have really good reviews and lots of comments. And so I think those are some of the things that, you know, the upper 90 folks to their credit totally got right. And it was great. So it isn't just media that we're looking at. I mean, I think what we're trying to find is what are these sort of ecosystems that have magical superpowers? The cloud had basically free scale. These platforms have cheap startup costs, but defensibility in a way that small businesses never used to have. Beautiful. On that, we're going to have you back. I think we got some great takes. Canute, did we miss anything? I think we got a lot. 28, Canute. He's almost as old as our kids. I know. I have friends that have uh, kids 10 years older than you. (laughs) Well, good. Well, if they're still in in Brooklyn, we've run out of friends because everyone's gone. So I'm happy to get a drink with them. (laughs) These quitters in New York, they're not true New Yorkers. We will see you soon, my man. Uh, Thanks for coming on Panic with Friends. And uh, Sounds good. keep taking care of New York for us. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Bye. Yeah, under 30, 30 under 30, Canute. Oh, wow. Isn't that amazing? Hey, things are going fast. Hey, he's hustling. Yeah, no kidding. Very impressive there's, young there's, man. There's something for everybody. Cornell's a great school. I meet a lot of great people at Cornell. Didn't even really track that school until about six, seven years ago. I spent so much time in New York. I just kept hearing Cornell, Cornell and meeting all these Cornell people. I'm like, whoa. Because, you know, Yale, someone goes to Yale, they yell it out the first time. Hey, hi, I'm Jim. I'm from Yale. <laughs> Which immediately makes me dismiss them. Harvard people don't tell you. And then you see it on your resume and you realize you don't want to do business with them ever. And then Cornell people I like. Huh. Because they're Cornell. It's a very unoffensive, not offensive, non-offensive. A lot of great people coming out of there. Like Norway. How's life in Norway? What are you hearing from the streets of Norway? They're doing pretty well. They got some uh, flare-ups, if you want to call that, but mostly from people uh, that they just couldn't stay in Norway for the summer. They had to go to Spain, and they came back and brought it along. But, you know, they're Mm -hmm. very, very good at uh, stopping it quickly uh, by putting people in quarantine and by using the apps. Beautiful. We are – I hope we get through this soon. We are nearing – 
Panic with friend of Mark. If you told me we're going to do a hundred episodes, I would have said, no way. Who's going to pay Canute? Meanwhile, here we are. <laughs> Still haven't been paid. <laughs> so uh, everybody that's panic with friends, Canute, my sidekick and producer and man about town. You can find us on Spotify, on Apple, on Google podcast search my name search panic with friends search stock twits which is distributing and hosting the show making it all possible thanks to ali my guest we come at you twice a week if you like the way i think go to my blog howardlinson.com i write a daily free newsletter and if you want to find canute on social media good fucking luck not there <laughs> and uh, we will see you in a couple days with another episode thanks canute thank you